Everywhere you look, there is uncertainty and anxiety around us. And then our lives. Sorrow, sickness, uncertainty, financial pressures, worries, fears about us, about our loved ones, about our families, about our friends, the state of the world, the state of our hearts. There's a lot to be anxious about. And in the middle of all of that anxiety, in the middle of all of that uncertainty, where do you go to find peace? Most of you are already Christians, so you will know and believe in your heart that God brings peace through Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about that a little bit tonight, but I have another question. What about the people around you? Maybe you're here tonight or you're joining online and you're not a churchgoer, you're not a Christian yet. Could God give you peace? Could he reach into your soul and deal with the circumstances that you're facing? And Christian brother or sister, what if God could use you as a source of peace in a troubled situation? Can the peace that God gives to his people become a source of peace for a community? For a family? For a nation? Could the greatest call of God upon the church of Jesus Christ in the United Kingdom in this season be that we are people of peace? Offering space and hope to women and men around us who can't find it anywhere else. Tonight as we were worshipping I look around, I do it every week, but I look around at those of you that are present in this room, and I know many of you, I know many of your stories, I've walked with some of you through them, and the fact that you're still standing is remarkable, that you haven't given up, that with all of your questions and all of your uncertainties, you're still here, you're still pressing in, you're still trying to stand in some way tonight, I want to bring a word of encouragement to you not to give up. But I also particularly looked at those who live in the millennial generation. That's up until the age of about, uh, from about the age of 22, 23, up. My son, we have one son who is a millennial, and we've got, uh, no, we've got three children who are millennials. And then we've got one who is Generation Z. If you're under 21, you're in Generation Z. And they're suffering from the highest levels of anxieties that a generation has ever known. There's an epidemic of anxiety in Western culture. It doesn't just affect people in Generation Z. It affects lots of people sitting in this room. I'm talking about the kind of anxiety that sometimes makes you feel as if you can't breathe. The uncertainty about your life, about your circumstances, about what's going to happen tomorrow that feels like an elephant is standing on your chest. 
the anxiety that you feel from the moment you get up in the morning until the moment you go to bed at night. And in everything that I say this evening, I want to make something very, very clear. And that is that if you are being treated by a doctor or by a counsellor, or by somebody who is offering you psychological or prescribed medical support, thank God for that. There's never any need to be embarrassed about your mental health. I don't want anything to do with a church or a Christian culture that says that our mental health is something that we should hide away from. Nor do I think that the church should have anything to do with a community that says that, but then in the end really says, but all you need is Jesus. That's not right, it's not fair, and it's victimizing people who already feel as if they can't cope. Tonight in this room, there are people who take drugs because they need to for their asthma. There are people who have taken drug therapies because they need to for chemotherapy. There are others that take it for rheumatoid arthritis. There are those that take it for heart disease. There are those that take it for a whole range of things. That I have to go and see physiotherapists or occupational therapists or other people in order to help their lives work well because of the challenges and the restrictions that they face. Mental health is no different. And there's an awful thing that can happen in Christian cultures where we make it sound like we really believe that we want to embrace healthy um, living, healthy mental health. For uh, Everybody has mental health. That we want to encourage and support good mental health for women and men. But then in the next breath, we discount it all and say, all you need is prayer. That's not what I'm suggesting tonight. It's not what I want to try and leave you thinking. Instead, I want to try and help you think through what it means to live a life free from anxiety. And if you have an anxiety disorder, if you have an anxiety condition, if you are a person who's living with other mental health conditions, please, please, please remember that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be here to support you, to love you, to serve you, to help you, and to walk with you. You need never be embarrassed about that. And if you're ever in a context where people make you feel embarrassed, because you're a Christian and you're living with mental health. They are wrong. And it should be challenged. What do I do? As a pastor of a congregation of a number of hundred people with a team that are fantastic to help you live with your mental health and to help you live as free from anxiety and stress and pressure as is possible... I'd like you to turn with me in the Bible to a portion of Scripture that I want to reflect on with you. Matthew chapter 14. I'll give you a chance to find it. I'm going to read from verse 22. And I'm going to read it slowly. Jesus is the subject of the sentence. Immediately 
he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land. For the wind was against them. Have you ever felt like that? And early in the morning, he came walking towards them on the lake. But when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, saying, Is it a ghost? And they cried out in fear. Anxiety is like that. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you in the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith. Actually, in Greek, there's no um, of there. It sounds like he's telling them off here. This is more like a pet name. In, in Greek, Jesus says, it's like little one. He says, you little faith. There's a tenderness about what he's doing here. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. When you read Matthew's gospel, what you discover is that there are two stories about Jesus walking on water. This is the second. Now, there are reasons for that in the way that Matthew, the biographer of Jesus, tells his story because he's writing for Jewish people and almost all of the other miracles that are mentioned are all of the other things that Jesus did in other gospels where he's recorded as doing it once and Matthew is recorded as doing it twice. Because Matthew writes his um, gospel as if he is defending a legal case. And in Jewish culture, there needed to be two witnesses for anything to be proven legally. But there are other differences between Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 14. Take your time and read them for yourself if you would like to. Read them slowly, though. There are similarities. Jesus comes and rescues his disciples he responds to their need. He meets them where they are. It's the same Jesus. It's the same disciples. It's the same strip of water. But there are dissimilarities or differences. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is already in the boat. In Matthew chapter 14, he comes walking toward the boat. In Matthew chapter 8, he commands the waves to be still. And then there's a gentle rebuke of the disciples here in this passage, he tends to speak more gently and kindly. It feels as if 
He's allowing the disciples to make a journey for themselves around anxiety and uncertainty. And he's giving them space to learn and to grow. Are you an anxious person? Are you one of those people that is born a worrier? Could you worry for Ireland? Could you worry for Belfast? I've always found it interesting that in the Bible, Jesus commands his followers not to worry, which I find very uncomfortable. Or am I, am I the only one that would find that difficult? Don't worry. And what's the first thing you do? Do you immediately say, okay, no problem? Don't worry. And immediately you're worried about being worried. Unless he doesn't say it like that, of course. Tone is everything. Unless he says, don't worry. Unless he's trying to bring reassurance and help and comfort to those that he knows that are going through a really difficult season. And he's trying to teach them something about life. In 1997, a Jewish rabbi called Edwin Friedman wrote a book called A Loss of Nerve in which he identified some of the big challenges that were facing leadership. It's a very difficult, dense, hard-to-understand book. I commend it to you if you like reading that really stretches your mind. But in it, he fundamentally says that um, there has been a failure in Western society around worry. And that there's a generation of men and women, boys and girls, that are rising that are going to be riddled by anxiety. That their lives are going to be devastated by it. This was 23 years ago. He was right. In the book, he sets out five different areas that enable or have created that problem for people. Here's what they are. Number one, in the West, here in the United Kingdom, for our context... We have risen, we have created a generation of people who react rather than respond, who's, who are always reacting to something. And it's not just even that that is a deliberate thing by you. You're being manipulated to react by social media, by Twitter now, by Facebook, by logarithms. If we can get you hooked, then you will read more and more and more. And before you realize it, you'll be in a whole chain of conversations that you don't understand and it'll create an anxiety rising uncertainty in you that can control you instant news instant access instant conversations that sense of urgency around everything those of us that are over 40 could look back I did it this week in old photograph boxes anybody got an old photograph box in your house and occasionally you'll look at it and you'll see the kids playing on yellow lilos on the beach. Or your mother and father always wearing orange and brown in the 1970s. <laughs> I have a picture of my mum and dad sitting outside their caravan in Malayle. And we look at those photographs and they evoke memories for us of a time that brought happiness or sadness or something. But we have those photographs. I read a really interesting article this week in preparation for tonight that said in 20 or 30 years, 
When somebody goes back to their virtual album to look at what their life was made up of, it will just show meal after meal after meal. <laughs> this is what I had for breakfast. This is what I had for dinner. Look at how big these prawns were. My steak is raw, whatever it might be. Now, there's a, an understory behind that that is made more serious by things like um, Cambridge Analytica and the manipulation of data and all the stuff that happens and GDPR breaches and worrying about all of your access. In the end, we are living in a culture where anxiety has become a commodity that gets us to buy more stuff. That's a cultural problem. And it's a cultural problem, particularly for those in Generation Z. Because you have been exposed to it much more than I have. I'm 50 this year. I've lived in a different kind of culture. I didn't have that thrown at me all the time. Therefore, we have a responsibility to do something about that. That constant reactivity causes anxiety and uncertainty in people. Ask somebody who has been plagued by an Instagram account. And they look and they say, oh, she's wearing nicer clothes. He's got a better body. They're a happier couple. Look at their, look at the size of that house. Look at the size of their car. Look at what they've got. It's this constant reactive environment that can generate real anxiety in people. Friedman was writing about it 23 years ago. The second thing that he says is a real difficulty is the principle of what he describes as herding. We all like to say that we're individuals, that we're not governed by um, a collective consciousness, but we all try to fit in. We all try to make ourselves conform to the popular voice, to the popular idea. It's just part of human nature. And when that herding is a negative herding, when it's rooted in comparisons, when it's rooted in always having to be better or healthy or strong, it can destroy your self-confidence. I wonder how many of you go to bed at night feeling as if you're not good enough. It's not entirely your fault that. It's a culture that is creating a herd mentality in people. Thirdly, he talks about blame, creating an even greater level of anxiety. That's always somebody else's fault. Our unhappiness is always somebody or something else's fault. If I had a better body, if I had a better house, if I had better friends, if I was in a better church, if I had a better job, if I looked better, if my nose was longer, if I had an implant surgery, if I did this or that, there's always a reason for my uncertainty. My anxiety always has to be blamed on something else. The fourth thing that he says is that we live in an age and the, it will increase and increase and increase where people want a quick fix. They might be able to identify the problem, but they need the solution to be quick, easy. Press a button. Give me something that will fix me now. And he says that that is all made really much more difficult, and this is going to sound confusing to you, by what he describes as a lack of differentiated leadership. What's that mean? It means that in our lives, the people around us that we look to for leadership, for support, for help, teachers or parents or pastors or educators or classroom assistants or whoever it might be, 
are losing something of the ability to stay calm in the moment that you're facing pressure. And when they are not calm, you become worse. When your culture is going mad and there's nobody in the middle of it saying, it's going to be all right. That creates a spiral of anxiety. We live in a culture that talks about leadership being connected, being empathetic, and all of those things are important. But when you're going through anxiety, you need somebody that can help you. And here's what he says. He says, the only way out when you're in that circle, the only thing that can help you, the only thing that can break that cycle for you is a non-anxious presence entering the circle of your life. A non-anxious presence is somebody who is deeply caring, deeply loving, deeply present, but is able to remain detached so that they can offer you hope. So that they can say, look at me and listen to me. I'm going to tell you something that will help you navigate this. Hold on to it when you can't trust your own emotions. There have been times as a brother, as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor, when I have had to say to somebody in deep crisis, sometimes the closest people to me that I love profoundly, you can't trust your own emotions at the moment. You can't trust your circumstances and you can't trust your perspective. You cannot trust what is going on around you, but you can trust what I'm about to say to you. God will carry you through this. If that's not true, it's arrogant. But if it is true, it's profoundly important. So I want to think with you for a moment about how you can handle your anxiety and how you can help other people who are living with anxiety around this idea of a non-anxious presence. My sermon title was being people of peace in an anxious world. What if you can be a non-anxious presence to someone? What if the Church of Jesus Christ in Northern Ireland could be a non-anxious presence in this culture? Not far from here are the highest suicide rates in Europe amongst men between 25 and 55. What if the church of Jesus Christ could step into that circle, men and women, and literally see lives saved? What if you could be a non-anxious presence for somebody? Well, that depends on whether you have discovered what non-anxious presence means, doesn't it? It depends on whether you have discovered how you can have this non-anxious presence sounds so clinical at the center of your own life. Christians aren't the only people that can bring that. Others can too. But my suggestion to you is that at the heart of Christian faith, there is an answer to the anxiety and the pressures that the world is facing. That there is a, a way of the church and of you as a follower of Jesus, if you are, becoming someone who can bring life and hope to others. So that wherever they are and whatever they face, hope is possible. What's interesting 
is that those five things, reacting, hurting, blaming, quick fixes, and being too connected or connected in the wrong ways, are symptomatic of a culture that is chasing after everything and anything. There are folks sitting in this room tonight and you've bought into the lie that our culture can make you happy. That your job or your money or your relationships or your sex life can lift your anxiety and you know deep in your heart that you are sliding down, not sliding up and nothing is stopping the spiral. Your friends are all doing the same thing. So you think it's okay because I'm in a crowd that all feel the same way. But the reality is that in Christian theology and in Jesus Christ, there is a way of lifting you out of that spiral and giving you hope and holding on to you in the midst of the deepest uncertainty. I want to suggest to you that the answer around overcoming anxiety might be different to what you expect it to be. And that it is found in Jesus Christ, not just in his death and his resurrection on the cross, his death on the cross and his resurrection, but in his lifestyle. In the way that he lives. He teaches us something about living at peace with ourselves and living at peace with our world. That is profoundly life-giving. I want to counter Edwin Friedman's five ideas with five other ideas. That we learn to slow down. That we learn to celebrate Sabbath. That we learn the gift of real relationships. That we discover what it is to pray. And that we learn what it is to lead lives of freedom through yielding. What? Let me explain. Some people look at my life and I'm not saying I'm perfect about this. Some people look at my life and they will say to me, Malcolm, um, you live a very fast-paced life. They don't really see me. They look on the external of my life and they see a pace that's something like that. That's not the pace of my life. This is the pace of my life. Because I have, over the years, as I've reflected on the life of Jesus and on his example, and I'm not saying I'm perfect at this, we all need continual growth in it, discovered that there's a better rhythm for me to live in, there's a better reality for me to believe in, there's a better rest for me to receive, and there's a better reason for me to keep living. And when I combine those four things, rhythm, reality, rest, and reason, my life slows down. I understand what it is to need rest and to use it. I have close friendships around me. I've discovered something of the power of prayer and the freedom of a yielded life brings freedom from 
much of the anxiety that can too often gather around us if we're not careful. So come back with me to Jesus in Matthew chapter 14. If you know your Bible or if you just look down at it now, you will see that the passage that we read comes after the death of his cousin. His life has been devastated by loss. He is at sea. And he sends his disciples under a boat and he goes up a mountainside alone because he needs to center. He's already told his disciples that they are to live this way. He is living what he is teaching. His rhythm is so different to yours and to mine. The American philosopher and theologian and Dallas Willard was once asked, give me one word that would describe Jesus. What word do you think he chose? Relaxed. Is there any point from Matthew to the end of John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus appears to be in a hurry? Is there any example of him being stressed by other people's timetables? He had learned the art of living differently because he was Jewish. And here in Matthew chapter 14, at one of the pinnacle moments in his ministry, he slows down. He goes up a mountainside and he prays. When we have more to do, we speed up. When we have more to do, we try to squeeze 25 hours into a 24-hour day. Not so long ago, I had something that I needed to get done, so I had to work through the night. I don't do it very often, and I felt sick for about three days afterwards. But here in Scripture, what we see is an example of life that has slowed down, an example of life that has lived at a different pace. How can that be connected to anxiety? Because when you're slowing down... You have a chance to recharge. You have a chance to gain a better perspective. If you ever wonder about how perspective can change in the heat of a moment, just look at some Twitter conversations. Have you ever watched or listened or read some of the stuff that people say to each other on Twitter and on Facebook? These perfectly normal human beings suddenly become ferocious, Hurling insults at one another, yelling and shouting, putting into capital letters and saying stuff on social media that they'd never say anywhere else because there's no filter. Sometimes I read it and think, oh my goodness, you would never say that to them face to face. Slowing down is not just about doing less. That's not what I mean. It's actually sometimes about doing more, but doing it better. There's a direct correlation between our levels of anxiety and our levels of activity. We need to learn what it is to have a pace in our lives that works for us. Some of you may not think that I live this. I actually do. My deep timpani rhythm is rooted in a daily practice of prayer and reflection and reminding myself of who God is and what he wants of me and what he has said over my life. And it's out of that 
that the activity of my life flows. I'm not driven by your demands upon me. I, I refuse to be drawn into that set of expectations that other people can place on someone that makes them feel constantly like they need to do more. You know the reports that you get home from school when you were away could try harder. Well, that might be true, but I, I am not going to be controlled by your expectations of me, I'm afraid. Because your expectations of me will be too high or too low. I want to live at the pace that God has for me. And so should you. And living at that pace changes the way you engage with the world around you. Jesus slowed down. Secondly, Sabbath. Elton Trueblood, an American author, says things that are so countercultural about leadership and about life that some of you will find them difficult. He says, to be more effective, you have to be less active. That the more leadership we are given, the more we need to pray. That the deeper levels of responsibility land on our desks or in our laps or in our lives, the more we have to be able to find space to think about them. I believe that. When I came here to um, Dundonald, I spent some time with my colleagues encouraging them to get a better pattern of rest. To get a better pattern of stepping out of the work flow so that they could um, recharge their batteries and reflect and think. Every one of them has increased their productivity. That's difficult when you're in a church culture where you are told that the busier you are, the better you are. I reject that culture. You don't have to be busy in order to be effective. Sometimes you need to slow down. Sometimes you need to find a better rhythm for your life. Anxiety rises when you feel as if you're going to get up tomorrow and have to fix the problem again, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after. Sabbath, however you practice it, it's not up to me to tell you how to practice rest, Sabbath tells you that there's a breathing hole somewhere. That breathing hole might be an hour, it might be a couple of hours, it might be an afternoon, it might be a morning, it might be a day. I have a friend who encourages me to divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. In other words, take a bit of time every day, whether it's 15 minutes or half an hour, and I do this, to just step out of the race and breathe. I sometimes do that over a cup of coffee with my PA in our office on a Tuesday morning. We'll talk about anything and everything. I am abandoned, I am with I am diverting daily. I'm talking about musicals or Belfast Community Gospel Choir or anything that I want to talk about, just something not to do with church. Withdrawing weekly is for me taking the dogs for a walk on the beach or going up to Killy Nether Woods with them and standing for an hour blowing a flipping wolf whistle to try and get them to come back. <laughs> because they're very obedient golden retrievers, not. It might be going for a swim in Newton Nard's uh, pool if somebody doesn't notice me. The benefit is that I can't see without my glasses and I can't hear, I'm deaf, so people talk to me all the time and if I have no glasses on and I haven't got my hearing aid, I have no idea who they are. I go, try to go for a swim two or three times a week. 
And there's a little, a fantastic little um, leisure bit associated with the pool in Newton Arts. This isn't the plug. I don't get any commission. Um, and you can sit in it. And every time I've sat in it since I've gone, somebody has come up to me and said, hello, pastor. That's a very disconcerting conversation when you're sitting in a pair of swimming trunks. <laughs> I really love your night blessings. <laughs> you're like, that's lovely. I think I'll join David Lloyd. <laughs> Find something that can help you to withdraw. Read a book. Paint a picture. Go to a Strictly Come Dancing. Whatever it is you need to do, find something to do it. Have a half and half Chinese on a Sunday night. But do something that can help you to get a pattern into your life that reminds you that it's not the end of the world if the list of things that you have to get done don't get done. It'll be all right. I've, always, I've often say this, I've said this to one of my closest friends, Campbell Tweedy, several times. You know, this country can be run on a, on, a, on a cabinet meeting for an hour a week. So a church of our size can be run without everybody being busy all the time. Maybe it's our sense of self-importance. Maybe it's our sense of needing to be needed. Maybe it's our sense of wanting to fix everything. Maybe it's our need to be in control. I don't know what it is, but they all create anxiety. Slow down. Find a better rhythm. Rest and rhythm. Thirdly, find some good friendships. I mean the kind of people that are just going to be there. That you meet on a Saturday night. There's a couple of couples here in our church and they've met every Saturday night for about 500 years. I don't have many of these. But I have a handful of people and I know that they love me. And they don't love me because of what I do. They don't love me because of what I bring. They don't love me because of what I can achieve. They love me. They're interested in my well-being. And I could rock up on their door and my life could be falling apart and they'd simply say, let me put the kettle on. That absence of genuine relationship can make you feel commodified. Can make you feel as if you have to perform. Can make you feel as if you have to somehow be what they want you to be rather than who God has made you to be. But to be with somebody who really loves you, to sit with someone who really cares and is going to give you time. The Bible has a word for that. It's koinonia. It's what the early church was built on. I wonder what the Donald Elam would look like if it was built on healthy relationships. All of us had six or seven people that we loved and who loved us. And we had nothing to prove. We had nothing to get from them. It wasn't commodified. It wasn't a transaction. I wonder how many of you deeply crave that. Just somebody to be with you and somebody with whom you can be. It was the heartbeat of the early church. Imagine what it would look like to a fractured society if the church said, 
in this community, we love each other. We don't meet because we have to. We enjoy company. We spend time together. Fourthly, a life of prayer. Rick Warren has suggested that the amount of prayer and the amount of anxiety in your life affect one another. I'm not so sure it's that simple. In my life, there have been times when I haven't been able to pray. But somebody somewhere praying for me has carried me through. I don't think that I'm a very strong Christian. I think that I am a rather weak one. And I have discovered in that weakness that the prayers of others can carry me and sustain me and help me. But I also love prayer. I don't mean by that, by the way, okay, Lord, here's a list. I have a friend in the United States who said that he realized that he'd done something wrong with prayer, uh, teaching his son how to pray, when his son, who's now 55, 56, came home when he was about 11 or 12 and threw his trainers in the corner of the living room and grabbed his, <laughs> grabbed his Bible and said to his mom and dad, I'm going upstairs to pray. Does anybody want anything? <laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of prayer. I'm talking about being deeply rooted in a relationship with God where you know that he loves you. And spending time with him refreshes your soul. You might do that tonight for a few minutes. Five minutes in his presence, five minutes intentionally sitting with him, reminding yourself that you are loved, that you don't need to do anything to prove yourself to anyone. A dose of grace and mercy from your best friend wipes away all that sense of failure and anxiousness and fretting and uncertainty. It's the most remarkable gift. And lastly, the ability to yield. I think perhaps this is the hardest. One writer describes this as yielding or relaxing into God's goodness. A yielded life is a life that says... Whatever the outcome, I know you're not going to leave me. And that's enough. I think perhaps I have discovered that in my life in ways that I would never have chosen to. That God is enough. That whatever happens to my kids, whatever happens to my wife, whatever happens to me, whatever happens to you, whatever happens in the world, God himself is enough. Do you know what happens when you come to that realization? That grip that you have on your loved ones loosens. That grip that you have on your Circumstances loosens and you realize, actually, I don't need to be afraid anymore. There are loads of couples in our church getting married. It's great. Don't 
become so anxious about the preparations for the wedding that you lose the joy of it. If the venue doesn't work out, it's okay. You say, what would you know? Twelve weeks before our last son got married, the venue cancelled on us. It was the church, by the way, (laughs) that I was leading, but that's a whole other story. We can hold on to everything. I need my daughter to do this. I need my grandson to do this. I need them to make this decision. I, they'll only be happy if they do this. In the end, what we're doing is being, being driven by fear. And when we loosen that grip, because God is enough, something changes in us. You can tell the difference between an anxious parent and a non-anxious parent. So how are you doing with all of this? How anxious are you? you know, not, nobody can see, but how are you doing? Because you might be sitting listening to me saying, this is fantastic, but how do I, how do I discover that non-anxious presence in my own life? That's where Jesus comes in. Because he is the most non-anxious presence imaginable. I know that there is a need to repent when you become a Christian. I know that for many people, becoming a Christian is the point at which they turn away from their sin. But what if the point at which you meet Jesus is the point at which you turn away from your anxiety? The rest will follow. But what if the non-anxious presence that you need tonight doesn't lie in this church? It doesn't lie in a program. It lies in God. In Jesus Christ himself, who will do what he did with Peter and come to you in the middle of the storm and say, as he says in this passage, take heart, it is me. In Greek, in this story, Jesus says, he didn't speak Greek, he spoke Aramaic, but the story has him saying, ego eimi. That phrase is used in the book of Exodus when God describes who he is. It's used in John's gospel when Jesus describes himself as being God. And here in this passage, when the disciples are frightened, when they are anxious, when the storm is rising, when they feel as if they're not going to make it, when they're surrounded by everything that could go wrong, Jesus walks towards them and says, Ego a me. Not only that, but if you take this story from beginning to end, this ego a me phrase is right in the middle of it. It's like the fulcrum upon which the whole story balances. There are 91 words on one side and 91 words on the other. And it's as if... Matthew is saying to us, if you want an anxiety-free life, if you want a life that can carry you, then at the center of it is the fulcrum of who Jesus is. And he can meet you. The first thing he says to these frightened disciples is, take heart, it is me. How many of us need to hear that tonight? Take heart, Anxiety will not crush you. Fear will not destroy you. Uncertainty will not sink you. Take heart. He is here. Walking toward the boat of your life. Reaching out a hand. 
And as you get out of that boat to walk toward him, you may sink a hundred times. All you need to do is do what Peter did. Lord, save me. And immediately he reaches down his hand and lifts him out of the water. The greatest blight for the generation that's coming up in our fellowship is anxiety. It is worry and concern and fear about what could be and what might happen. One person once said this, you spend 99% of the time worrying about things that are not going to happen. But it doesn't help you when you're facing it. You don't need a trite answer from me. You need love and support and care and perhaps medication and perhaps counselling and perhaps someone to walk with you and perhaps someone to listen to you and perhaps someone to see that what you're facing is real. But you also need this. Not because I'm telling you that it's the only thing you need, but it's the only thing that will see you through. You need Christ. And if you are here tonight and you don't know this Christ, then you are carrying an anxious presence around with you all of your days. But imagine inviting him to be the center of your life. Then you not only receive this non-anxious presence, but you carry it. A few years ago, my personal circumstances were such that I had to do everything I could to keep my wider family together. It nearly um, did me in. In the early church, they had a role for people called the pater familias. It was one person in the family that somehow God placed something on so that others in the family could look to them for help and support and encouragement and strength. I became that to my family. I'm the baby. I'm the one that everybody else is supposed to look after. But I became this pater familias. And you know what? Most of my family aren't Christians. They thought that they needed me. They thought that they were getting something from me. It was God in me that they were needing. It was God's presence and God's spirit and God's promise and God's power and God's hope working in me and through me that carried my unchurched family through the darkest nights of our souls. Maybe that's what you are. To your dad, to your mom, to your sister, to your brother, to your nephew, to your niece, to your husband, to your wife, to, your, to whoever it might be. Maybe God can make you the non-anxious presence in your workplace or for a generation or as a teacher or in a classroom, wherever you might be. But to step into that involves the humility of saying, I need you. Involves the honesty of saying, I need to slow down. I'm not invincible. I'm not impenetrable. I need to find ways of resting. I need friendships. I need to be rooted in what God thinks of me rather than other people think of me. And hardest of all, I need to yield my life and the lives of those around me into God's keeping. 